0: All right, please come on in, everybody. That was returned to me for some strange reason, but it's not mine. Come Jen. All right, come on in and find a spot and also make sure you have the uh, handout with you for our series, Positive Holiness. So John has some here and Larry has some there. And we need somebody, one of you guys over on this side. Jill needs one. Anybody else over here need a handout? Page 10. you will turn to page 10 in there. Anybody over here need a handout? All right. Today is our final lesson in Positive Holiness. And then next Sunday we will start this class at 11 o'clock. Rather than 11.15, 11 o'clock we will start and the weeks thereafter. And that's because in here, for starting next week for eight to nine months, we will be going through the 290-page notebook that is Master Plan for Life. Uh, So I encourage you, if you have never taken Master Plan for Life, a lot of you already signed up for that. Uh, Even if you didn't sign up for it, Just show up next week at 11 o'clock in here and you'll get one of those notebooks and I'll explain what the class is. But it is a core class that our church offers for everyone to go through in order to get established in the uh, cardinal doctrines of the faith. And we'll spend eight to nine months doing that. And uh, it's a helpful class and a lot of our folks have been through it. At least half, if not more, of our people have been through it but a number have not. We're trying to make it more accessible by offering it on Sunday morning. After we're finished with that, then perpetually every year we're going to offer that class and the other of our core classes, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, on Sunday morning for those who have not taken it, new people that come in. So if you've not taken it or it was a long time, you want to take it again, we'll start at 11 o'clock in here. For those that are not taking Master Plan for Life, There'll be an alternate class. Dr. Combs is going to be leading a survey of 1 Corinthians, a study of 1 Corinthians. So you have those options. Master Plan for Life will be in here. And 1 Corinthians, depending on how many people are taking it, will either be in one of the adult classrooms if there, we can fit in there. If not, we won't know if we can fit in there until next week. If not, it'll be down in the uh, student section, down in our teen area. We've got a large area where that class will meet. So both of those will be going starting next week. And that means for the first hour, our worship hour, that we're not going to start with the announcements, 9.30. We start with our call to worship. So I'm encouraging everybody to make sure you get in the habit of being with us at 9:30, so you don't miss anything because you won't be just be missing a few announcements you'll be missing some of the actual worship we're starting that earlier so that we can finish earlier because this is starting earlier okay all right page 10 positive holiness so today's the last week for this and you see in that packet that there are a lot of pages still to cover uh, we won't cover we can't cover all of those in detail but i can hit the, the highlights that i care to Uh, call your attention to, and then you can read the rest on your own. But we left off last week at the bottom of page 10, and this lesson is titled, The Means of Holiness. And the passage upon which that title is based, The Means of Holiness, that is the way that we become holy, is John 17, 17. Jesus prayed to the Father the night before he died, sanctify them by your truth and then he said your word is truth so sanctify my followers by your truth sanctify means make them holy so the process of being made holy comes says Jesus by your truth and then he identifies the repository of that truth it's his word your word is truth so if we are going to be set apart made holy sanctified It's going to be by means of the Word. The more you are familiar with the Word of God, the more you're familiar with God. The more you're familiar with God's standards, the more you're familiar with what God approves and likes. If you're not familiar with God's Word, if you're not in it regularly, then you won't be able to discern the difference between what's holy and what's profane. We've got a lot of... biblically emaciated Christians in evangelicalism. People who are not immersed in the Bible. They go to churches that don't teach the Bible and the, and the meat of the Bible. And as a result, they don't have a good understanding of God and His standards and what He approves of and what He doesn't approve of. And so living in a fallen world, we just drink it in. And over time, we absorb the values of the world and we thus become worldly. So my statement over the years has been this, that you will either consciously adopt your values from Scripture or you will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. You'll either consciously, uh, intentionally adopt them from Scripture or unconsciously absorb them from the culture. We are called, we are commanded to consciously adopt our values. And what we believe, and then in turn, based on what we believe, what we choose to do based upon Scripture. Consciously adopt it so that we don't unconsciously just absorb it. And that's why, then, at the end, uh, or bottom of page 10, I say this In order for the believer to effectively evaluate the values of the culture, she must be immersed in the Word. According to Jesus, we are sanctified, made holy by the Word. Therefore, The Scriptures, when accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, are the most potent change agent in the universe. How do the Scriptures function to change us? The most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and it offers a four-step process by which the Bible produces holiness in us. All Scripture is God-breathed and is, and then you've got these four things, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Those four things. Now, those four things are in a logical order. If you move any of those four things out of that order, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, then they don't make sense. Paul, who wrote it, put them purposely in a logical order. Teaching comes first. And it's by virtue of the teaching that we're rebuked. I'll talk about what rebuking is in a minute. But the first thing the Word of God does is teach us. We learn the Word of God and it tells us. It tells us about God. It tells us about ourselves. We look at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God and we see that there's a problem. That we don't have the image of Jesus when we look into that mirror that there's a gap between the character of God and our character. So it teaches us that, though. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about about ourselves. So step one is teaching a confrontation with the truth. And the content of the Word of God is the catalyst for this change. As I said, it acts as this mirror, and we see this gap. But then on page 11, the content of the Bible produces this gap, between who God is and who we are. We regularly see that as we're immersed in God's Word and the content of God's Word is exhaustive. The passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for those four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. But then verse 17 says, For this purpose, so that each Christian, the man or woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for... Every good work, those three last words, every good work. So the Bible is given to us to equip us for everything that God wants us to do. And that's why I say then the content of the word is exhaustive. It's from the Bible that I learn who God is, who I am, his purpose for me, what he wants me to do. So the content of the word covers everything. It does not address every issue directly, I say there, But it does address every issue of life directly or indirectly. That is, all issues are covered in Scripture, either in precept or in principle. And that's the reason the Bible says the Scriptures can equip us for every good work. There's nothing that you're doing, there's nothing that's going on in your life that the Word of God does not address in precept or in principle. The Word of God tells us things about God tell in his character about us, about his mission for us, his purpose for us. And out of that, then, we can make our decisions about the things that we should and should not do. It covers everything. There's nothing outside of its scope, either in precept or principle. Now, having looked at the Word of God, which is a revelation of God, that is, a a making known of who God is, So I'm reading that and I'm seeing God's dealings with his people and a fallen world. And I'm seeing his character exposed there, revealed there. And then I see myself, you see yourself. And you cannot then but have the second step on page 11, rebuke. Scripture is useful for teaching but then rebuking. Now the word rebuking is the same word for convicting. Very same word in Greek in your New Testament, convicting. So you could have the word convicting there. It teaches us, and having taught us, it convicts us. It convicts us of the gap between who God is and who we are. Conviction is the result of this confrontation with the truth. The Bible exposes our sin. And it exposes our sin in a way that nothing else can in the life of a believer who has God's Spirit living within him or her. Hebrews 4.12 that I have listed for you there, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, the Word of God does, the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God who wrote the Bible, God who who superintended the composition of the Bible, who's the ultimate author behind all of it, this God is all-knowing. And so He can write a book whose last entry was penned 2,000 years ago and still that book be as relevant today as it was when he wrote it because he knows, he knows everything. He knows us completely. He knows exactly what we need. So he can write a book that penetrates that way and judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. So it convicts us that God's standard is this, but I'm here. And we've got to have it. We've got to have the Bible. It doesn't come to us naturally. I don't just know what it is I'm supposed to do. And here's why I don't just know. Number two, middle of the page. The noetic effects of sin. That word noetic comes from the Greek word in your New Testament for mind. Noose. So noetic means thinking. Sin has affected the way we think. Sin has affected the way we think about God. Sin has affected the way we think about ourselves, about others. It's tainted the way we think. You've got to have the word of God then to clarify our twisted, distorted thinking. The the noetic effects then necessitate that the Spirit do this. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The sinful mind, the sinful noose, is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Paul said of himself, now get this in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Notice, Paul is saying, I don't even know my own motives. That's what he's saying. My conscience is clear. I've searched whether or not I'm doing what I should be doing and for the right reason. But even that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who the Lord who knows. So we, we all have this defect, this inability to know our own motivations. Uh, our hearts are deceitful. And so we need the Word of God to penetrate that and to expose the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, rebuking is then conviction. I read the Bible. I'm taught. I'm confronted with the truth about who God is, who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing. And then this unpleasant thing, could be unpleasant thing, occurs. I'm convicted. Now, I say it could be unpleasant. You say, is it possible for conviction to be anything but unpleasant? Yeah. If you look at it, Hear this, friends, if you look at it as but just one step in becoming more like Jesus. If you look at it as a necessary step in you becoming holy, then conviction is a good thing. For God to show you the stuff that needs to change is a good thing. That's the whole purpose for which he saved us in order for us to be like him and reflect him back to him. He made us in his image for that purpose that image has been marred but not erased by sin, and God is remaking that image in each of his people. In order to remake that image, he has to show us what's wrong. So it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. But this conviction occurs. Don't take it as a strictly negative thing. And I say at the bottom of page 11, it has an objective basis. Contrary to popular opinion, Conviction is not a matter of feelings. Rather, it is this, a legal term used to denote the prosecution of a case against one who has broken the law. So some of us make our decisions by, this way. We go, you know, I do this, do X, whatever it is. I go here, whatever it is. I buy this, whatever it is. I drink this, whatever it is. Uh, I do all of this because I don't have a conviction about it. You ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said it. I don't have a conviction about it. In other words, my heart heart is not convicting me that I shouldn't, so I do. And the whole definition in that context of conviction is, I don't feel bad about it. But conviction is not feeling. It's, It's a legal case made against someone who has broken the law. And that law, in this case, is the word of God, either in precept or in principle. So I'm urging you to lose the idea of conviction as a matter of whether you not you have it or you don't you feel it or you don't and if you don't feel it then go ahead and eat drink and be merry lose that idea When I was a kid growing up in a holiness church that's what our church was called Pentecostal Holiness and I explained to you what holiness was there it meant there was just a whole list of stuff you just don't do um and then, you know, as we got a little bit older, they tried to teach us the Christian school that I went to, same same thing, very big on holiness and the rules that went with it. And they tried to teach us, you know, to start to learn to make your own decisions about, about these things. And this whole conviction idea was a big deal. You know, do you have a conviction about it or not? And there were kids in my class who had lots of convictions. They felt bad about everything. They were miserable. I was perfectly happy to be fat, dumb, and have no convictions. Because the people who felt it were miserable. They wanted, there are all kinds of things they wish they could do, but they can't do it because they feel bad about it. And so I just determined, you know, convictions are like measles, man. Stay away from this. People who have those get sick. You don't want convictions. But conviction is a perfectly good and biblical word. It is, I'm guilty of something. There's something I'm doing that I shouldn't. There's something I'm not doing that I should, is the idea. But that comes from the objective word of God, its precepts or its principles. And we're going to see how to glean those in a bit, but that's what conviction is. Then that leads to the third step, top of page 12, correction. If God's word leaves you with these first two, it teaches you, it shows you the gap, it then rebukes, convicts you, And then God puts a period after that. If the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, period, good luck. Just leaves you hanging. Just leaves you rebuked. Leaves you convicted. It doesn't. It goes to a third thing. The Bible gives you the means by which to correct. And the word correct, as I say there at the top of page 12, means to cause to stand, to erect a building... Means to cause it to stand to correct means to cause to stand something that has previously fallen. So you've fallen you are convicted something you're supposed to do you're not or that you are doing that you shouldn't. So now you are fallen but you need to be made to stand and the Bible gives you the instructions for doing that it gives you things like putting off. This is what you put off and this is what you put on. It gives you a lot more than that, but that's just an example. And then God desires that these changes, these corrections that are made in our lives are to be the ongoing pattern of our lives. And that's the fourth thing, training in righteousness. The word for training is the Greek word for discipline. It's the word used for someone who actually trains in a a gym for an event. So, training, you are now, you are, you are training, you are disciplined in order to continue this pattern of, of behavior. This discipline requires a constant exposure to the Word, and then, lastly, there it requires regular study of and meditation on the Word. So, the Word of God is the means by which we are gradually set apart from the world and to God. All right, so everybody's good with that? I'll assume. That's the vehicle, the Bible. But then, now I've got the Bible, you've convinced me that I need to read the Bible in order to get its teaching and rebuking and correcting and training, but how am I I supposed to do that? What's the process of doing that? And that's what the next lesson's about on page 13. The process of holiness. Finding out what's right with it. Notice I have the word right emphasized. And that's to contrast that line with what's wrong with it. You see, that's what most of us do. We've been doing it since we were kids, and then those kids become adults who keep doing it. Asking, so what's wrong with it? And if you can't find anything wrong with it, then go ahead and do it. That's the idea. Whereas the Bible presents it a different way. It doesn't say if you can't find anything, it doesn't teach if you can't find anything wrong with it. It's saying you must positively identify that it's the right thing to do. And if you're not convinced that it's the right thing to do, don't do it. Now, where would I get something like that? Romans 14, the entire chapter of Romans 14, is about whether you should eat or not to eat. I think I have a sermon on it called To Eat or Not to Eat. That is the question. Okay? Should I eat certain kinds of foods? That's what's in Romans uh, 14. You have a similar kind of thing in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 about eating, different context. Romans 14, should I eat these things? And Paul, who wrote that, is giving instructions about principles and deciding whether you should do that and also about how we treat each other if we make different decisions about it. But then he ends it with verse 23. The last verse of Romans 14 is verse 23. And it says, very short, just says this. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's how it ends. Whatever is not of faith is sin. What does that mean? Well, see, faith, according to Hebrews 11, 1, is what we are convinced of. Remember that? Faith is what we are sure of. So it's saying... Whatsoever, whatever you do that you're not sure is right to do, is sin. The Bible Knowledge Commentary summarizes that verse and that chapter with these words. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin means this, when in doubt, don't. That's a quote from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. When in doubt, don't. So your quest in the Bible is not to avoid finding something. Think about what I just said. That's what most people are doing. They're like, okay, I'm doing this thing. So now let me see if I can avoid finding that in the Bible. And then I'll be able to say there's nothing, what, wrong with it. But no, that's not what we do. We go to the Bible to find out positively what's right with it. And if we're not convinced it's right, don't do it. Be willing to give it up. If you're not absolutely convinced that the thing is right. Now, I've said all that, I should probably try to prove it. That that's really the deal. So, page uh, page 13. There are some problems that we confront when we make decisions as Christians using the Bible to make these decisions. One is the believer's relationship to fallen culture. It's just sometimes hard to do because we are in the world and not of the world. And the world is what I've told you for the last several weeks. If you haven't been here for the prior lessons, they're all on our website. You can listen to those. But the world is fallen values expressed in culture. And I'm surrounded by those expressions. You're surrounded by those. The culture is full of worldliness expressing fallen values. But it's not all fallen. Some of it's common grace. Some of it is unbelievers getting it right just because they're made in the image of God and they live in God's good world. And so unbelievers don't always get it wrong. They don't always do the worst that could possibly be done. And so I'm surrounded in a world with models before me, things happening that are, yes, fallen values expressed in culture, worldliness, but then there are these common grace things. And I have to discern between the two. I have to, as you've heard me say in weeks past, I have to analyze the culture to see what things are expressions of common grace and what things are expressing fallen values. Well, that that takes some effort. You have to go through and do that analysis. Last week we did some of that. I gave you some examples of doing that. Values like sensuality, celebrity, frivolity, wealth. These are the kinds of things that we identify and that are worldly, fallen values, so we stay away from those. We look at what the Bible says about those. We did that last week. But it's it, it requires work, effort. It doesn't just happen. It's not just, you know, I don't see it that way. You know, I just don't feel like, I, I feel like it's all good. That's how most Christians live. I don't see anything wrong with it. Haven't read the Bible thoroughly. Haven't sought to ask the questions what's right with it, haven't done the analysis and evaluation of the world to see what fallen values are being expressed and what it is we're doing. I just don't feel it, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I'll go ahead and do it. Don't judge me. That's the way it goes. So the problems are, admittedly, that that takes work. It's It's an obstacle, but it's an obstacle that we need to overcome and be willing to do. Then down at the bottom of page 13, there is the danger of legalism. Legalism is the belief that our justification is a matter of what we do. Our salvation is a matter of what we do. The Bible is clear that we're saved not by what we do, but by believing what Christ has done. In addition, it is possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And these two issues have caused many to dismiss the need for rules and standards of behavior. So if you say something about, hey, have you thought about what you're doing there? I mean, you know, our first thing is, hey, don't judge me. What are you, a legalist? What, do you got rules? Where's this rule stuff come from? I mean, I thought Jesus put an end to the law. The Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, has got all these laws, man, and all this oppressive stuff that you're supposed to not do. And now I've got this freedom in Christ. So where's this rule stuff coming from? So there's this mistaken notion that if I'm in Christ, that's the absence of rules. Uh, listen, is the New Testament got rules in it? The New Testament's got a bunch of rules in it. Lots of stuff that you're supposed to do. Lots of stuff that you're not supposed to do. You're no longer under the law of Moses. The Bible makes that clear. But then Galatians 6.2 tells us we are under the law of Christ. Christ is the new law giver. The purpose for his law is completely different than Moses. Moses' law shows us how sinful we are and that we can't keep it. Jesus' law is for us to show that we belong to him. But we still keep his rules. We follow his voice. We do what he says in the word, and that includes the New Testament. So again, I- you've got to lose some ideas. Lose this idea that because we're no longer under the law of Moses, it means that we no longer need rules. You've got to have rules for yourself. You've got to have standards for yourself. So I say at the bottom of page 13, These two issues have caused many to dismiss the need for rules and standards. However, the proper approach is to develop rules and standards for ourselves. Notice I've got that in italics, for ourselves, with a footnote. Look at the bottom of the footnote. An additional issue with personal rules and standards is they quickly cease to be personal. Many seek to impose the decisions they've made on others. While such imposition may be appropriate in an authority-submission relationship, parents to children... Maybe, in a, maybe even in a church setting where you've got leadership having to say, look, if you're going to have certain positions in the church, you're not going to do X, Y, and Z. That may be appropriate in an authority submission relationship. We must be willing, though, to allow others to draw different conclusions than we. We do not all need to arrive at the same answers. We do need to ask the same questions. That's a, a line that I've been using for years. I believe it thoroughly. We don't have to arrive at the same answers. We do have to ask the same questions. My problem with many brothers and sisters is not that they don't do the same thing I do. My problem is they're not even asking the questions. Why are they not asking the questions? Because of what I said earlier. I'm not feeling it. I don't feel a conviction about it, and so what's wrong with it? And so I go and do it. Now, what questions should we be asking? Page 14. We develop biblical convictions. The popular definition of a conviction is an act is proper if you don't feel bad about it. The proper definition is this. It's a legal term used to denote the prosecution of a case against one who's broken the law. Positively stated, it's a settled assurance that what you're about to do is right. A settled assurance that what you're about to do is right. Word it carefully. Notice, it's what you're about to do. You haven't done it yet you do the analysis before you do the act you think about whether it's right before you actually engage in it because if you don't do that here's what you do you go by your feelings i don't feel it. i don't i don't see anything wrong with it and so you go and do whatever it is you spend your time doing whatever it is you spend your money going to these places engaging in these activities and then if it comes up you know you happen to show up at church and the p- pastor says, you know, there are things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, and you really need to think about these. And then you go, well, I do that. And you've been doing it for a long time. What could possibly be wrong with it? I mean, you've been doing it. If you're doing it, what could be wrong with it? Right? So if you, if you do first and ask questions later, here's what you'll end up doing, justifying what you've been doing. The way to do it is to think about it biblically before you do it, not do and justify later. That's why it's defined that way. Conviction is a settled assurance that that what one is about to do is right. Now, what's the scope? Everything. The precepts of the Bible and the principles. And here's the process. The precepts of the Bible are the direct commands of the Bible. Do this, don't do that. So you did, what do you do with that? Middle of page 14, you obey those. Bible says do something, do it. Bible says don't do it, don't do it. But you have to apply the principles. And most of your Bible is not precepts. Most of your Bible is principle. If you only look at your Bible and say, I'm gonna get my guidelines based on what the Bible explicitly says thou shalt do, thou shalt not do. If you use your Bible that way you have dismissed most of your Bible. Did you know that? Two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. Two-thirds of it. Narrative is narrating, telling a story about what happened to other people. In the telling of the story we're supposed to see what God is like, and we're supposed to see what we are like. And the reason there's two-thirds of the Bible is a bunch of these stories about what happened to other people is so you've got a variety of circumstances in which you see yourself. There's enough there for you to see yourself in all of these stories that the Bible's telling. But in nearly all of that two-thirds of the Bible, there's not at the end a moral of the story. There's not a bow wrapped on it that says, "So here's what you're supposed to get out of this." You have to read the story and you have to ask yourself, "Now, what is that saying about God's character?" And what's that saying about me and what I'm like? And then, in light of that, what should I what should I do? I'll give you an example. Ruth. Take the book of Ruth. Four short, marvelous chapters. I'll probably preach through Ruth next year. And it starts out this way, um, very first line, in the days when the judges ruled. That's how it starts out. Well, you're supposed to go, all right, this is going to be bad. <laughs> first line, in the days when the judges ruled. Why? Because uh, that's the eighth book of your Bible, Ruth. The seventh book of your Bible is called Judges. And it ends in Judges twenty-one twenty-five with this line. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how it ends. And if you read through the book of Judges, it's a really negative thing. It's all dark. And then the next verse in the Bible, the eighth book of the Bible starts in the days when the judges ruled. All right, something's going to go south here. In the days when the judges ruled, and then it tells you about a man named Elimelech, who, in the midst of a famine in Israel, takes his family from Israel to a place called Moab. Well, this is bad, because the Bible had already said, don't go to Moab. Don't hang out with the Moabites. They go, and they go, and two of the sons die that are husbands of two of his daughters, And now, um, uh, his two sons die, and the two daughters-in-law are left. And one of those daughters-in-law is Ruth. And so then the story goes on to talk about Ruth and her her relationship with Naomi, and what she does with Naomi and all that. But in all of that, you never, in that whole narrative, do you get now this was the right thing to do and this was the wrong thing to do. You never get that. What you get is the story. And you get God's character revealed, and you get Elimelech's character revealed, and you get Boaz's character revealed later, and you get Ruth's and Naomi's, and you're supposed to look at that and then compare that to the other things God has said about what's good and right. And then say, ah, this story is commending or condemning certain kinds of behavior. That's how you do it, it's narrative. It exposes what we're like. It exposes what God is like in the midst of the story. So we apply then those principles that we get out of it, asking not what's wrong with it, but rather what's right with it. Now, out of doing that, reading your Bible, going through the narratives and all of the precepts and principles of of Scripture, you develop what I say toward the bottom of page 14 is a personal casuistry. Yikes. Means case laws. In light of who God is, in light of who I am, and in light of what He's in called me to do. one. Herman deVry founded a university, rooted? You guys sick of me talking? <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone, but keep the thing off, all right? <laughs> so these case laws. The idea is, in light of then what I've seen about who God is, who I am, what he's called me to do, all of that, that I'm going to in create cases for myself, things that I'm going to do under certain circumstances and things I'm not, things I'm going to avoid and things I'm going to participate in, particular cases. Now, why do I say that? Because, one, there's the biblical pattern. God's law is comprised of two types of laws, fancy terms, apodictic laws. These are timeless. You shall not murder. That's an apodictic law. You shall not steal. That's that's a timeless law. That's not based on circumstances. It's not based on cases. But did you know most of the laws God gives are actually based on cases? If you are in a particular kind of situation, do this. And if you're not, do this. And all of them are expressions of God's character and what he's designed for us to accomplish. So you create an inventory of principles to apply. Look at page 15. You ask yourself questions about a particular thing, and these I stole, and I should have footnoted, but these are stolen from John MacArthur. So if you don't like them, then blame John, okay? And John MacArthur has this talent for illiter- alliteration. All of them start with an E. But he says, you know, go through and ask yourself these questions about your proposed course of action. Is it expedient? From 1 Corinthians 6.12. Will it be spiritually profitable? Some things can be wrong if they keep you from doing things that enhance your spiritual life. Edification, will it put you on the path of greater spiritual maturity? Excess, will it hinder you as you run the Christian race? Being out late on Saturday night is not a sin, but it may not be the best choice if it leaves you too tired to concentrate on Sunday morning. Do you see that? There's no verse that tells you when to come in on Sunday, Saturday night. But there are th- passages that tell you what you're supposed to be about. And now you have to back off from that to say, is this thing now helping me to do that? Enslavement, will it bring you under its control? We all know it's wrong to be controlled by drink or drugs, but it's also wrong to be controlled by music, by sports, or or TV. Equivocation. Are you using your freedom in Christ as a cover for catering to evil, sinful desires? Honestly evaluate your motives. Encroachment. Will it violate the lordship of Christ in your life? Don't let others talk you into doing what you don't think the Lord would have you do. Example. Will doing this... Set a good example for others to follow. Hey, look, if you would just do that, if you're a parent, you've got to take that seriously, don't you? If you're somebody who teaches in, a, in the church, if you're in a leadership position in church, you've got to take that seriously because people look at you and they look at what you do and they determine this must be an okay thing to do because so-and-so is doing it. So for myself... I restrict what I do. There are things that I could do that I don't do. They would not be sinful to do. But I know that they could be harmful to other people, so I don't do them. Now, the Bible does not say you cannot drink alcohol. It does not say you cannot do that. I don't drink alcohol. I could. I could do so without sinning. I don't. And the main reason I don't is because of my concern about other people. That's the main reason. There's some other reasons, too. One, I've got three brothers and only three brothers, and all three of them are alcoholics. So I take it that my family has the gene, and I don't want to find out if I got it. So that's another reason. But I've got an example to uphold. And I am concerned about the young person in our church who has the gene, who grew up in a home where that happens, and they see pastor do it. And then they say it's okay. So I'm giving you that example. And if you make a different choice, I'm not going to judge you. I am saying this is the way we've all got to make our decisions. And you don't live to yourself. None of us lives to his or herself. None of us is an island in the Christian life. We are all an example to someone. So bear that in mind. And if you want to be a Christian who just says, I get to do whatever I want, and I don't need to worry about what anybody else thinks, the Bible does not teach that. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 about whether you should eat meat offered that's been offered to idols. He says it's just meat. All things being equal, it would just be meat, grill it, and enjoy it. But then he says all things are not equal because it's going to have effects on other people. So think about that. And your love for those other people is going to have to dictate whether or not you're willing to limit your liberty for the sake of somebody else. In chapter 9, he gives examples from his own life of things he does not do that he had a perfect right to do for the sake of other people. You come to the end of that whole discussion, 8, 9, and 10. Verses 23 and 24 say, So all things are lawful. That's, and it's in quotes, by the way. All things are lawful. And he's quoting the Corinthians. They're saying, I can do anything. I'm free in Jesus. And he says, but not everything is expedient. And then he repeats them again. All things are lawful, you say. He says, but I will not be brought under the control of mastery of anything. And then he wraps the whole discussion up. In the very last verse of chapter 10, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, whether you eat then or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We do with that verse what we do with everything. We take it out of context. And we say, everything's cool to do if you do it for Jesus. That's what we think that verse means. What it's actually saying in the context is, only do those things that are for the glory of God. Not, I can do everything for the glory of God. It's only do those things that are for the glory of God. It's a limitation verse. Limit yourself to eating and drinking that can be done for the glory of God. And if the eating of the meat to idols cannot be done for that because it's going to have a negative effect on somebody else, then don't do it. That's what that verse is saying. Evangelism. Will it cause non-believers to respect Christians, what Christians do, and see a difference in our lives? Would Jesus do it? Will it glorify God? All right. That's positive holiness. There's some more positive holiness in the pages that follow, but you guys will only be partially holy as a result of not finishing this, uh, this series, okay? Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to ponder these issues and how you call us to be your holy people. And that is not automatic. It's inevitable, but not automatic. That you require our participation in the process. You've given us the instructions for how to participate. You've given us your word and for us to read it and apply it and meditate upon it. You've given us many examples in your word of how your people have done this. But it requires us to actively participate and intentionally glean the principles from your word and make application of them to the circumstances at hand. So Lord, help us to be people who have first and foremost your character in mind in all that we do and the good of others in all that we do. Not first and foremost a celebration of my individualism, or what I want to do. Lord, there is what I want to do. But nevertheless, your will be done. Help us to be people who, ask, who, who say that same thing that the Lord Jesus said. We ask you to go with us then this week. And help us as we seek to make application in our lives. To think about the things that we participate in or with refrain from. And to think about them in your categories because we care about you, and because we care about the things that you do. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.